So I'm curious if any of you are like me and my household. We have been watching the movie Encanto um, nonstop for the past two months. And at this point, my uh, Spotify year-end wrapped thing is going to be nothing but Encanto songs because my sons like for me to put those on uh, when we're in the car. Here recently, we had a youth group event, and somebody put on an Encanto song, and it was mind-blowing how every single student knew every single word to those songs. Something about Encanto that has captured uh, our collective attention. And if uh, you're unfamiliar with the movie, I will not spoil it too much, but the, the whole idea is, is that something happened that's traumatic to a family, and there was a miracle. And this miracle uh, not only protected the family, but it resulted in the individual members of the family gaining these special abilities or these gifts. And the whole tension of the movie is these gifts. There's either this strong desire to maintain the gifts and to function out, out of those gifts or to get the gifts. And so people either want to maintain the gifts or they want to receive the gifts. And what ends up happening is there's all this pressure and the characters and the world even literally begins to crack under the pressure of the gifts, under this miracle. And so, um, you know, there's a resolution ultimately in Kanto uh, finishes the story and they provide a resolution. And as you might imagine uh, from a, a movie, a film, it, it's an answer that leaves me feeling uh, like unsatisfied. It's, it's an answer that, that leaves the real true problem wanting. They don't have the true answer. It's a nice and sweet answer, but it's not an answer that provides true and ultimate hope or true and ultimate resolution. Nevertheless, there's a reason why a movie like Encanto is so captivating. There's something in it that speaks to us. There's something in it that we can grab onto and realize, yes, that identifies something about our society, our culture, and even me or us. Um, songs are great for sure, but I think it goes deeper than the songs. At the heart of this movie, I think, is this idea that we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to matter. We want to truly live. We want purpose. We want satisfaction. We want to be filled up. And so we'll look for it somewhere. We'll look for it in a gift or a miracle, like an Encanto, in family, in skills, or in accomplishments. You name it, we'll look for these things, for satisfaction, for purpose, for true life in these things. And so the question that we become confronted with today is, does Christianity, does following Christ provide a better answer to the questions posed in Encanto than Encanto? Or any other worldly solution to life's big problems? Does life in Christ actually provide life and sustenance and purpose and satisfaction? 
Does the Bible provide a better answer? And the overwhelming, clear answer to that is yes. Yes. The theme of the passage of Scripture that we're going to be considering this morning is Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. That's the theme of this passage. If, if you want to know what today, uh, what our passage, what this sermon is about, it's that Jesus is more than enough. It's like the old youth group song, Jesus is more than enough, and, and all of him is more than we could ever need. And Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough for true and everlasting life, and he's more than enough for us to be filled up and satisfied forever. And so we're going to look at a real historical miracle performed by our Lord Jesus And then we're going to see what that miracle has to say about Jesus in our place in his redemptive plan. So two points that we're going to consider this morning. Jesus is the meal and we are the servers. Jesus is the meal and we are the servers. And we're going to see that from uh, from Luke chapter 9 verses 10 through 17. So if you have your Bibles open there, follow along with me as I read. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging And to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let me pray. Father, this is your word, uh, your sufficient word, uh, which is enough to leave us complete and equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, I pray that we would receive this word and your spirit would put it on our hearts. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. And may the result be worship to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, what we want to see from this story, this miracle, is that Jesus is the meal. So if you remember back to last week, uh, we considered the, the early parts of this chapter. We saw that Jesus sent his disciples out. He commissioned his disciples with a very specific uh, job description to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Preach the gospel and heal, folks. I'm giving you authority to go and do that. Preach the gospel and heal. Uh, and while you're doing that, receive people's hospitality along the way because hospitality is important. And so they did. And our passage picks up when the, apostle, or when the disciples are gathering back together and, and they share their stories. And that would be a wonderful 
thing to be a part of. Uh, it would be so wonderful and interesting to have the insight of what happened as the disciples were set loose. Curiously, we don't get those stories, though. Which, as a sidebar, I think, points, uh, reminds us what the true point of all of this stuff is. And it's not the, the disciples and their coming and going. So they come together and they share their stories. And Mark's gospel makes it explicit. The disciples are exhausted. I mean, this wore them out. Uh, this is a lot of ministry. Ministry exacts a toll. And on top of that, everybody most likely just found out that John, uh, John the Baptist, had been killed by Herod. This is a man that was revered, that was honored and respected. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, a good reason for Jesus to get his disciples together and say, you know what, let's, let's get some rest. Let's retreat and get some space. And so they went to an uninhabited area, a desolate place. But the crowds found out. They tracked Jesus down and they uh, approached Jesus and as Kenny beautifully led us to consider earlier, how did Jesus respond? As I put myself in Jesus' shoes, it's easy to imagine Jesus becoming exasperated, right? I mean, Jesus wants to debrief these things that he had sent his disciples out to do. They had accomplished incredible things in his name. He wants to hear about those. He wants to disciple, equip, train up his beloved disciples. And on top of that, John was not just any old guy to Jesus. John was Jesus' cousin. He was beloved. He was the great prophet. No doubt Jesus is reeling himself from the news that John was killed. So who could blame Jesus for wanting to get away? And who could blame Jesus for, for being a little, a little perturbed that this crowd continues to demand more and more and more of him? But Jesus doesn't get angry or frustrated. Verse 11 says he welcomed them. There's not an ounce of frustration conveyed in this passage. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom. And he healed them. Other gospels tell us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He had compassion on complete strangers. Compassion on a people that were demanding of his time, energy, and attention. And surely if he had compassion on them, he would have compassion on us. Eventually it gets late. Disciples are sensing a looming problem. There's about 5,000 men, and that's men. And so no telling how many children and women there are. Uh, some estimate that this group could have been as large as 20,000 people. There's a lot of people, and they're in the middle of nowhere. They're going to need to eat, and they're going to need to sleep somewhere. And so the disciples sense this, and so they come and approach Jesus and tell Jesus, which I find funny that they tell Jesus to do something, but they tell him, send the crowds away. So they could go get food and they could get a place to sleep. And Jesus says, you meet their needs. You give them something to eat. The disciples essentially say, that ain't happening. <laughs> yeah, we, we can't do that. 
And so Jesus says, well, I can. I've got this. And he had his disciples put everybody into groups. They did. And then he took five pieces of bread and two fish. He took the bread, looked up to heaven. He prayed a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread. He broke it. Gave it to his disciples to distribute it to the people. They did. And people feasted. They ate their fill and they were satisfied. It wasn't like they just got a little hors d'oeuvre at a wedding reception and just desperate for more. Instead, they ate their fill. They they feasted to the point where there were 12, and these are large baskets, scholars say, 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. So here we have a miracle, a bona fide miracle. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. And it's not just a miracle, but it's one of the very few miracles that is actually recorded in every one of the Gospels. So that doesn't normally happen. You know, the the different Gospel writers have different things that they're seeking to emphasize and highlight. And so they don't often take a single account of a miracle and all speak to it. But they do with this one. So there's something significant in God's plan of redemption going on in this story. You know, the thing about miracles, though, is we often miss the point of miracles. How many of us would love a miracle in our life right now? I mean, how many of us would, would love for something supernatural to take place in our lives so that our circumstances are changed? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed for miracles for a miracle of provision, for a miracle of change of circumstances, for for all sorts of miracles, I've prayed for them. And no doubt some of you have as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's a good thing. God wants us to bring our needs to him, and, and our God usually works according to ordinary means. He usually works according to secondary causes. That's the typical way that he works. But every once in a while, God will work against nature and he will do something extraordinary for our good and for his glory. And so it's worthwhile to pray for those things to happen. And so as true as that is and as good as and as appropriate as that is, Many of us can nevertheless be a little bit like the amazing Madrigal family from Encanto, where we make the miracle itself the point, where we make the miracle itself our chief desire. We can ask for the miracle to bear weight that it's not meant to bear. In other words, the miracle isn't the point. And the miracle of Luke 9 is not the point. If we were to look at John's telling of this story, there's a follow-up discourse where a bunch of the people from this crowd catch up to Jesus. And as they catch up to Jesus, they want more. They were just fed. They just had this miraculous provision given to them. They feasted. But now they follow Jesus and they say, I want more. And what does Jesus say to them? Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, 
because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but food that endures to eternal life. Jesus tells them, they're, they're seeking out Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They think that Jesus will be their genie in a bottle and will give them all of their miracles as an end in itself. They think what Jesus can give them is the ultimate point. But it's not. So if it's not, what is the point then? Well, Jesus said to this crowd in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. And so as we consider Luke 9, notice the striking contrast that exists in this story. On one hand, you have the disciples. The disciples. They just got done doing these incredible things. They were sent out to heal and to proclaim the, the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel. They're probably riding the high of that because no doubt they experienced tons of success. I mean, they had authority over demons, and this was real, powerful, awesome stuff they were participating in. And, and these disciples, they rightly perceive a looming disaster is coming. And so they approach Jesus with, with an incredibly understandable request slash demand. They, they have a practical solution to this problem that they see. Send everybody away. Maybe they're even being formed to the point where they recognize that they are running the risk of acting in an inhospitable, inhospitable manner, which Jesus clearly seems to value. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. You feed them. Have you ever felt just completely hopeless and helpless? As I was reading this story, I was reminded of sort of a famous incident in our student ministry uh, where we were driving to Mexico one year, and uh, we had 50 students and parents going to Mexico, and a mile from the border into Mexico, before we got to Mexico, uh, we stopped for gas, and I realized that I, I left the cash box back at the church. So I left about $35,000 at the church that was going to cover our gas, our food, our uh, our mission trip fees. I mean, it covered everything. And it was just in my office, not with our group of people about to cross the border. And in that moment, I realized this and I just thought, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? And I, and I go through everything and I think, how much money is my bank account? Not that much money. <laughs> and I start trying to, trying to play the practical game and, and pretty quickly I realized I'm done. I'm dead in the water. I can't do anything. I am completely helpless in this situation. I'm insufficient for the task. No doubt some of us have felt that way uh, for any number of reasons. What are we going to do? We shrink under it. Well, well, that's what happens with the disciples. Jesus says, you feed them. And, and they go, with what? They, they, they have five loaves of bread and two fish 
in their midst. And there's 5,000 to 20,000 people sitting in front of them. So they do the quick math. How much money would it take for us to go and buy some food? Oh, it would take an infinite amount of money, just a ridiculous sum of money. There's no way for us to do this. The disciples are dead in the water. The disciples are insufficient. Disciples are a lot like Israel in the wilderness, also in a desolate place, unable to feed themselves, unable to care for themselves, waiting for manna to rain down from heaven. But on the other hand, you have Jesus. What does Jesus do? He says, I'll take care of it. Put these people into a group. He takes the bread, the five loaves. He he doesn't do an incantation over them. He doesn't do a magic spell. He prays and he thanks the Lord for this meal. Breaks it. And he passes it out to his disciples. And everybody eats. Out of his sufficiency, 5,000 to 20,000 people feast. They don't just nibble, they feast. Out of his power, not an alien power, not an outside power, not a magic that he tapped into, not DoorDash being called to the desolate place, from within himself, he fed the masses and they were satisfied. As one of my favorite theologians say, says, miracles are not mere wonders, exhibitions of power destined to excite amazement, but they have revelational significance. They prefigure and they symbolize redemption. In other words, miracles point beyond themselves. And, and, and here they point to Jesus and his identity. Jesus isn't performing a miracle to dazzle. He's not doing sleight of hand to make people think that he's, he's really neat. He, he's not trying to make people happy so that they go home entertained. No, he's saying something about himself. He's the meal. He's the meal worth getting excited about. He's the meal that satisfies. He's the meal that sustains. He's the meal that restores. He's the point of the story. Again, no doubt many of us would probably want a miracle today. We'd welcome that in our lives. We have lots of stuff going on from the incredibly serious, from the life-threatening, down to the things that are seemingly ordinary. But all of those things exist in this room. We would love a miracle in our relationships. Some of us feel like our relationships are completely broken. It would take an act of God to fix those. In our marriages, in our finances, in our health. We are a needy people, a desperately needy people. And again, know this, Jesus doesn't turn his back on the gathering crowd of strangers. He doesn't turn his back on them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not giving him his space or for asking him to do too much, but he has compassion on this, strange, or this crowd of strangers just as he has compassion on us today. Know that. If you're a desperately needy person today, Jesus has compassion on you. And he gives this crowd bread. He meets their physical need. He cares for their need. But remember, it's bread that lasts for a day. He feeds them and he fills them up for a day. The next day there's a bunch of folks looking for more bread. They want that thing 
by which, or which by nature cannot satisfy them forever unless they miss the point. And all the while, what Jesus truly offers in this story is himself. He offers himself. And so some of us may, may hear that and doubt, well, is Jesus enough? Is that a good thing? I'd really like the bread. Jesus is nice, but my 401k would be better. Jesus is nice, but my health would be better. Jesus is nice, but this restored relationship would be better. Jesus is nice, but fill in the blank would be better. But what does the Bible say? Can a 401k redeem a soul? Can a marriage satisfy the deepest and truest longings of our hearts forever? Or health last forever? The answer to all these questions is no. But what does the Bible say about Jesus? Hebrews 9, for instance, says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 7 says that for all those who draw near to, to Jesus, that he will save them to the uttermost. Psalm 16 says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, <clears throat> you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In Jesus, we have the all-sufficient Christ. All-sufficient Christ. The one who is enough in himself. The eternal son of God. Not just enough, but more than enough. And if we suffer, as it's been said, he can repay from his own fullness what he takes away. Why? Because he's the meal. Because he's the point. Because he's the one who provides in super abundance, leaving behind 12 baskets of bread. And he's the one who in our sufficiency we can run to for he is sufficient. Jesus is the point of this story. He is the meal. But now as we shift to our next point, and as we have that firmly in our minds that Jesus is the point, he is the one who is enough, we, we also have to recognize that there's a shift happening in this passage. It's a very clear shift that's worth noting in this passage. There's a shift in Jesus' ministry where there is a, a, a focus on the disciples, yes, but also the crowds and the public. And in this passage, we see a very clear shift away from the public and away from the crowds to, to the disciples. Jesus' attention, his orientation, he's being oriented towards the disciples now. 
And so there's messages galore for the disciples in this passage. No doubt Jesus wants the disciples to get the point of this passage, which is that he is sufficient. They want him to see, or Jesus wants them to see his sufficiency. It's striking that Jesus could have dealt with the crowd's hunger at any given point. Uh, I mean, he could have just made their hunger go away. He could have done any number of things to fix this problem, but he let the problem build and he let the disciples' concern build until the point where he supernaturally dealt with the problem in this grand, wonderful way. In other words, Jesus was discipling his disciples. He was teaching them through this story. So that's something that they should take from this. No doubt Jesus was teaching his disciples something about asking him for help. I I mean, in this, Jesus said, you feed them, and they were left stumped. Well, practical. I mean, what do we do? Well, how much money do I need? Uh, Can we get, get enough fish? Can we get everybody's lunch boxes and dump out the contents and feed that feed people with that i mean what what are we supposed to do and all the while i mean in the very recent past they'd seen jesus calm the wind and the waves cast out a legion of demons uh, uh, heal a woman just by having her touch his cloak raise a young girl from the dead And we could go on and on. Jesus' power, his divine power has been on incredible display. And all the while, his disciples are presented with the problem. And they didn't think, you know what, maybe we should go talk to him about this. Let's ask him if he could do something about this. And so so Jesus is certainly um, asking or uh, discipling them to consider, go to the Lord with your problems and ask him. Make bold, uh, bold, or ask bold questions of him and see what happens. But the emphasis in this passage is on something a little different. Jesus is continuing a teaching theme that he had already emphasized back at the beginning of Luke 9, and he's going to continue for the next 10 or so chapters. Notice who who interacts with the crowd at a personal level in this story. Is it Jesus? Jesus acts as a host. He welcomes the crowd, and he teaches the crowd. But he's not down uh, on the ground with the crowd. He's not looking them in the eye. He's not talking with them at a personal, individual level. He prays for the food. He distributes the food. But he isn't the one who's actually with the crowd. Who is? The disciples. In verse 13, Jesus says, you feed the crowd. The you there is emphatic. There's a special place of importance placed on that you. You Give the people something to eat. You organize the crowd into small groups of 50. You distribute the food that I multiply. Jesus' attention is uniquely on the disciples in this passage. And so the big point of this story is that Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. But that sufficiency is mediated through the disciples. If Jesus is the meal, then his disciples are the waiters. You know, my family has recently um, dove into the world of youth baseball and uh, little league baseball. My sons, Henry and James, are playing in the Brea Little League. And I don't know if you're familiar with this world at all, but let me just tell you, it is a deep dive into an entirely new culture, like an overwhelmingly new 
culture, and I have realized already that I'm not quite up for the task. Um, so uh, I am technically uh, an assistant coach for the minor A Los Angeles Angels five- and six-year-old baseball team. So that's a pretty big accomplishment that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, but I'm an assistant coach for Henry's baseball team. And to say that I don't know what I'm doing is an understatement. Um, so I, I grew up playing baseball, so I know how to play baseball. I feel sort of competent as I try to tell kids how to throw the ball and how to catch the ball and how to hit the ball, that sort of thing. So that's not so much my problem. My problem is, is that there's like never-ending meetings for this league um, and there's never-ending communication for this league, and I don't go to any of it or pay attention to any of it, and so I don't know how to do anything by the league standards. I don't know the rules. Um, I don't know uh, how we're supposed to set things up or tear things down. Um, again, Henry's on the Angels. I don't have any Angels shirts or hats or anything like that, so I just wear a red Alabama shirt to the game so I look like I'm fitting in. I'm a really bad assistant coach. So um, I'm aware that there, there's a giant gap in my knowledge here. Uh, but last Saturday we were at a game, and uh, I'm warming up some kids, throwing a baseball with them, and this other coach comes, and he looks like somebody who understands this world. And he comes up to me and says, hey, coach. And I kind of look around like, is he talking to me? And he, and he calls me over and he says, hey, we, we've had some, uh, you know, we've had uh, a couple of disagreements with the other coaches on the other teams. Hey, tell me. How do you understand the rules about clearing bases? And I'm just like, oh, yeah, clearing bases. Um, you know, we, we clear bases. It's, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking me. And he, <laughs> and he says, well, you know, like, after how many outs are you clearing? I was like, we, we just let everybody hit, I think. Like, I mean, it's just like Little League and I don't know. And, and he keeps asking these questions. And all the while, I just feel like an idiot. Because I don't know a single, it feels like he's talking to me in a different language. And, and I, I'm, I'm not up for the task. I don't have the knowledge that he's looking for. And I said, you know what, hold on a second. And I went over to Coach Louie, who's the actual coach for the team, who's responsible and goes to the meetings and doesn't mute the mass text messages on his phone and actually pays attention to those things. And, and he goes, oh, well, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we'll play. And I go over and I tell the coach, and he goes, great. And we go on and have a great day playing Little League Baseball. So, why do I say that? Why do I tell this story? This is roughly the idea with the disciples here. The disciples are a people who are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly confronted with their insufficiency in this story. They can't feed the gathered crowd. They, in themselves, they are hopeless and helpless. They can't extend the hospitality that they, know, that they know Jesus values. They can't show the sort of compassion that Jesus shows and Jesus desires for them to show. They can't unpack the mysteries about the kingdom of God like Jesus can. They can't, but Jesus can. They are insufficient. Jesus is sufficient. It doesn't end there. In his sufficiency, Jesus chooses According to his wisdom, his might, his kindness, his steadfast loving kindness, Jesus chooses to use his disciples to dispense his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his knowledge, and ultimately his sufficiency. They are empty-handed, but Jesus fills their hands. 
so that they might go and distribute freely. Why? Because he loves them. And he wants them to be a part of his redemptive plan and purposes because he wants them to experience the joy of seeing him at work through them because he wants them to grow through the tough parts of this process. And so he sends them out with his authority to heal and to proclaim the gospel, not with their authority, not in their power, not in their strength. They are weak and insufficient. He sends them out with his strength, with his sufficiency, with that which belongs to him. And he does the same for us, Grace. He does the same for us. We talk about ministering the gospel here a lot. Please hear us. When we say minister the gospel, we're not talking about something that, that pastors and elders uniquely do, that the paid staff uniquely, uniquely does. At the end of the day, to minister simply means to serve or to attend to the needs of some, someone or some people. And, and what we recognize here is that in Christ, we have new identities, those of ministers. We have been made a holy priesthood. We are people who have been qualified to minister the gospel by virtue of the blood of Jesus. And so we collectively are a people who've had a new job description placed on our lives. And that is to go and to serve and to pour ourselves out so that others would know and enjoy Jesus. So that others would be filled up from his fullness. We're a lot like the disciples. We're called to go and make disciples of our neighbors, of our families, of people in a ministry that we might serve in, of the person sitting next to you. And we're like the disciples in that we go as people who are empty-handed. We're not doing this because we are great and we are strong and we are knowledgeable. We do this because God has given us something to steward and we disperse that freely. And so this is why Matthew Henry says ministers can never fill people's hearts unless Christ fills their hands. And so Grace, we have an opportunity this morning to have our hands be filled. We're having our eyes fixed on the all-sufficient Jesus, the Savior who serves out of his fullness for his glory and our good. And so may we go to him so that our hands may be filled and so that we can distribute these things so we can pour ourselves out. This morning, one of the ways that we're going to seek to have our hands filled and be filled up from Jesus' fullness, from his sufficiency, is by approaching the table and observing communion, the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I want to remind you that this is one of the very few miracles that is contained in all four of the Gospels, the New Testament. That's interesting, right? Why might that be the case? Most scholars seem to think that's the case because the early church saw this story as having a direct connection with the institution of the Lord's Supper. There's something about this story that is supposed to better help us understand communion or the Lord's Supper. And to that, I want you to notice something about our passage. It's subtle, but there's a formula contained within our passage. Luke says that Jesus took the bread. He took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and then he gave the bread. So he took the bread, 
He blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and then he gave the bread. So um, that may seem just like a thing that's said in this passage, but what we're actually seeing here is a type of formula. This thing that's being said here is unique to Jesus, actually. Jesus isn't praying a, a historically Jewish prayer of thanksgiving or consecration of this bread. Jesus isn't participating in a, in a long-standing Jewish ritual. Jesus is doing something unique that only he does by taking and blessing and breaking and giving. And so there's a formula being worked out here. This same formula shows up two more times in the book of Luke, both times around food. The next time is at the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. And the last time is at the meal in Emmaus in Luke 24. And these are both incredibly significant identity-revealing moments in the life of Jesus. So as one noted scholar says, Luke thus employs the formula, took, blessed, broke, gave, in three critical and calculated contexts. In each instance of which, the breaking and dispensing of bread to the disciples is a revelatory symbol of Jesus' self-giving for the church and his passion and resurrection, through which his disciples recognize him as the fulfillment of Scripture. So in layman's terms, this passage uniquely reveals something about Jesus' death and resurrection for our, on our behalf. It tells us something about the gospel. Now what does it tell us about the gospel? It tells us that Jesus is sufficient. That he is sufficient. He's not just sufficient in some sort of generalized way. He's not just sufficient to, to give us purpose. To, to make us not feel low. No, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, these are sufficient for us to have our sins forgiven and for us to receive everlasting life in his name by grace through faith. As another great pastor theologian says, he was devoured so that we can feast. So that's what we do this morning. We recognize the bread of heaven who is devoured for us. We recognize the sufficient one who we can rest in and we can hope in. We have the opportunity uh, to be like Jesus' disciples and to have a, a physical trust or a physical word that we can touch and remind us that God saves sinners like us. We get to actually hold the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and eat that today and have something that physically reminds us of the promise of the gospel, that God saves sinners, and that the Savior of the gospel is an all-sufficient Savior. And so, this morning we're going to feast together. Why don't we remember and proclaim Christ's death together? And as we do, may we be reminded of our very great sufficient Savior who loves us and gave himself for us. If you believed in the Lord Jesus, you were not walking in, uh, in willful rebellion, holding on to your sin, but are seeking to walk with the Lord, then this meal is for you. And I bid you to come and eat, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, be nourished and have your faith strengthened. If you've not received the Lord Jesus, or if you are walking in willful rebellion, if you're, if you're holding on to sin, 
then we urge you to refrain from approaching the table. Take this time to pray to God and ask him to, to bring about repentance in your heart. And if you don't know the Lord, then, then realize that this table declares to you that you can know God and have your sins forgiven and receive everlasting, joy-filled, glorious life in Christ's name. We'd love to talk to you about that. But God's word says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Can I invite the ushers or the servers to come forward and take our elements? So notice a few stations scattered throughout the room. Um, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And as I do, um, take a moment. And when you're ready, uh, approach uh, and uh, any of our stations and they will lead you. Uh, one person will give you the bread and, and tell you that this is Christ's body given for you. And then you can take that and dip it into the cup. And, and that server will say, Christ's blood shed for you. And you could take and eat. Uh, on my right, your left is a gluten-free st- Actually. Oh, it's all gluten-free. So uh, any, any station for you gluten-free people. Let's pray and let's feast. Father. We thank you for your son Jesus and the life that we have in his name. And Lord, we thank you that it's not a, a small or weak life, but Lord, we could have a fullness of life in his name because he is a sufficient Savior, a sufficient Lord. And, and so, Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to him, you would fill us up. And not only fill us up for satisfaction and joy in this life, but Lord, would you fill our hands so that we can go and we can serve so that others might know and enjoy you so that Christ might be magnified and glorified in all the earth. And now, Lord, as we eat, may we be blessed as we consider that Jesus died on our behalf and, uh, and is returning for us. So we thank you for these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.